Welcome to another episode of Through My Eyes. I'm Ralph Franzilli, your host for our series of interviews with Little Falls Vietnam veterans. And I'm honored to have with me today, Charlie Balderston. Charlie served with the Army Infantry in Vietnam from September of 1966 to September of 1967. Charlie, thanks for coming in. I appreciate it and You're thank welcome. you for your service. Yeah, thank you. Charlie, let me start with this. It's over 52 years, 52, yeah, 52 years since you were in Vietnam. Do you still think about it? Yeah. Give me an idea what you, what, what comes to mind. Well, the, the unfairness of the, the way the Vietnam vets were treated, that that's just never goes away. You know, there was a lot of things that entered into it, but that that's the thing that always bothers, you know. Uh, my neighbor, uh, if I could name, name sure. Stan, Stan Gorecki, he was on the draft board, okay, and he was instrumental in getting me drafted, I would suspect, okay. But the thing about it was he never said thank you, or of course nobody did, and he never said welcome home, you know, or anything of that nature. He was just a hard-nosed, probably World War II vet, you know, like football coaches back in the day. They're just perhaps mean people. I don't know. But yeah. So it's little things like, not little things, but significant things like that, that have stuck in your mind yeah. it, all and, these uh, years. Yeah. So over 58,000 American men and women killed in Vietnam over 300,000 wounded, and over a million Vietnamese killed. Do you think it was worth it? Was it worth the fight in your mind? Overall, uh, no. Tell me why. Well, a lot to do with the draft, you know, and uh, a lot to do with the, the kids I went to school with, and. Uh, to start with, there was 150 of us that got drafted mm -hmm. in Syracuse who we went for a physical. And out of that, only eight of us got drafted. Everybody else went to Canada, became teachers, got married, got deferments, got in the Coast Guard or whatever. You know, that, that was surprising that, that it happened that way. Okay. And, uh, that that's sort of bothersome, you know, the Canadian, how they let them off the hook versus the people I was in the service with did the John Wayne thing. You know, we were brought up Americans and you do your duty. That, that was my mindset when I got drafted. So <clears throat> after your high school graduation, and I'm going to come. I'm going to circle back to this in a minute. But mm -hmm. you obviously you you had a good idea that you'd probably get drafted, and you did absolutely nothing to avoid that. You were ready and willing and able to go. Exactly. Yeah. That's why I just took short-term jobs, just uh, just to wait for that to you happen. You knew it was coming. Yeah. Yeah. Were you thinking about Vietnam at that time? Did you did you think that there was a good possibility that you'd end up there? Well, it was almost guaranteed that I was going to be going there, but I didn't, I didn't think of that and I didn't worry about that. 
I don't know why. I can't really tell you why because most people were. You know, the 142 people that didn't go, I don't blame them for not going. Right. Perhaps they were had fear of, of dying. Okay. I never gave the thought of dying any thought. I always felt I would be coming home. I felt I had a purpose, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, I wasn't afraid of that. So... Uh, I give you a lot of credit for that. Well, so going back to high school, you graduated in June of 64, and you didn't get drafted for 18 months. So what were you, just give me a snapshot of what you were doing in your life in between during that time. Oh, working. I took a job at Snyder's, and uh, Actually, it didn't seem like it was a year. I felt it was only about six months or so from the time. It just seemed, I don't know. I don't think about that either. But just raising hell. There was a recruiter from the Navy that was trying to get a hold of me. My mother would say the recruiter was here, you know. And when I showed up for the draft, uh, the lady in Mohawk, when the eight of us got drafted, I, I get in there and she says, your name's not on the list. And I said, well, it has to be. She says, no. So she's looking through the papers and she says, here you are, you're in the Navy. I says, no, I'm not in the Navy. I had no desire to be floating around. Didn't want to be on the water. <laughs> yeah, I don't have a fear of water. I just like, if you want to go somewhere, you just walk away. You don't do that when you're on a boat, so. Right. Yeah. So that was that. So. So you get drafted. Where, where were you actually inducted? Do you remember? Sworn in. Where were you sworn in? Uh, what do you mean? Uh, well, you took an oath, right? To, yeah. You know, where was that? Was that locally? Was that in Syracuse or? That was probably in. Uh, I don't know. You know, you get the Mohawk and get on the bus. I don't recall. Okay. And then you get to Fort Dix, and I'm assuming it was down to Fort Dix. So you did your basic training at Fort Dix? No. No? No, that was a whole other strange story. Uh, the guys uh, in some of the photos were John Rodick and myself from Little Falls, uh, Ron Gage and Gary Richardson from Herkimer, Phil mm -hmm. uh, Nicastro and uh, Carmen Tripolone from Frankfurt, and Roger Bacon from Mohawk, and the Jerry, I can't remember his name, he got a deferment, Jerry did, and Bacon went to the NCO group because he was a, he was drafted by the Giants as a pitcher. He threw 95 miles an hour back when I played against wow. him in baseball. <clears throat> so six of us were down to Fort Dix, and Everybody would come in and go out the next day. They'd come in and go out, but we stayed there like 24 or better days. Mm -hmm. You know, we'd play cards and Carmen would say, Charlie, it's your turn to go out and do the roster. Because every morning you'd go out and line up and they'd say, Nicastro, he would say, you know, here, Alderston, here, you know, Tripolone, here. So. Rather than everybody go out, one guy would go out and answer to all the names. And we were saying, why are they keeping us here when everybody else was in and out? So as it turns out, 
We were the nucleus of building the 4th Division. The 4th Infantry Division. Out in Washington, Fort Lewis, Washington. So what we did, uh, when they finally did pack us up to go, uh, for some reason the plane even couldn't take off a storm perhaps, so we had to spend a night at a hotel near the airport. Mm -hmm. And we'd go to Fort Lewis, Washington, and we became A Company of the 1st of the 8th Infantry. We were the first group of the 4th Division to uh, settle in at Washington. And, uh, so where did you end up doing your basic training? Well, just the same thing everybody else did. Just run, sweat, break any equipment. Uh, now where was it then? What, what location were you at when you did that? Was well, it, it was Fort Lewis. It was, you were still in Fort Lewis? Yeah. Okay. And then we did uh, advanced training. Now, tell me about advanced training. Well, it's just a little bit more more hand-to-hand -hand combat, more teaching you how to uh, take care of wounded, you know. I mean, basic training did some of that, but it got a little bit more intense, mm -hmm. you know. And then, there, then we got into uh, two phases of division training, which is, to my knowledge, had never been done before. You know, I think they felt that by training us as one super unit, we were going to, you know, blow everybody away. But I can't say it worked out that way. Well, this was very early in the war. Uh, the, the first troops, I believe, were sent over, first ground troops were sent over in, I think it was May of 65. So the, it's very early in the war, and they're prepping you for this, for the buildup, basically. So you end up... Your MOS was Infantry Operations Intel Specialist. What is that? Tell me what that is. Well, it, it could have been part of uh, the intelligence by okay. itself, but what we were initially being used for was in-country and trained for in the division training aspect was radar operation, ground surveillance radars. They look like half a garbage can type of thing on a tripod and you would scan. We could say, and even with my hearing now it's messed up, but you wear headsets and you could hear someone walking. Okay, you could tell the difference between a woman walking and a man. The woman will take a shorter step, mm -hmm. typically. You know, I mean, it was that accurate, let's say, with the training. So, so at Fort Lewis, this is what they trained you for to, yeah. to do that kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That was that picture. Uh, that was the radar section. Because we were transferred from A Company, that group, twelve of us, from A Company to Headquarters Company, mm -hmm. along with all all the guys from the Valley. We all became uh, Headquarters in one phase or another. I just want to take a step back. Sure. Something I meant to ask you and I forgot. How did your family feel about you being drafted? I, I don't recall. I'd say they were probably worried, but oh. overall supportive. Good. My father was, uh, I grew up, he's a very fair and understanding man. And he just 
felt it's what we had to do, you know. So, so you get deployed to Vietnam. What was the flight like going over? Well, no flight. No flight? You no. went as a group? You went as a division? Went as a division. So you... We took the USS General Gordon Merchant oh. Marine ship. Okay. The whole division. And I was saying earlier, my brother Pete, being in the Air Force, he he deployed the same day that we left country. But he flew. He went to Cameron Bay, and we were headed to Da Nang. So it must have taken quite a long time to, to sail. Yes, 21 days. 21 days. Yeah. Anything interesting happen on the, on the cruise over? It was just a... No, 99% of the people were puking on a regular C-sickness. basis. Yeah. How about you? Did, did you get seasick? No, I was pretty pretty good with that for some reason, but it was very tempting from time to time. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. yeah. So when you get to Vietnam, what, what, what were your first thoughts when you, when you got there? I don't know, sort of excitement. Uh, we got off on them little troop, you know, the World War II, the front door opens. I don't know what oh, they Oh, the landing craft? The landing craft. We, we landed at uh, Da Nang off of them and got on uh, big trucks and headed for uh, the coast. Well, Where I mean, the, the base up there. What was the, where was that? At, at Da Nang. Uh, we, we camped there probably for a month and then moved on up north. Okay. How far north did you go? Uh, Tuiwa, which is near Pleiku. So that's in the area. Mm-hmm. I know Vietnam at that time militarily was divided by corps. That was two corps, Central Highlands area? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what, what were the first few days like? What, what did you do? Uh, probably just getting organized. Uh, it's hard to say. It, that's a lot of the things I say. I don't really, there ain't many things I do remember about it, actually. But, uh, well, tell me about a, uh, you must have had a first mission. Do you recall that? Yeah, or parts of it. You remember getting on the helicopters and flying out to a landing zone. Uh, we landed where a bunch of uh, artillery were stationed. And we moved out from there to this uh, mountaintop. And it was pretty much the vegetation. There were no trees on it, or very mm-hmm. few. I think I may have a photo there or something that might indicate some of that. I think our purpose there at the time, we were with a company. I'm not sure if it was A, B, or C. And uh, basically, I think we could have been guarding a downed helicopter because there's there were some illustrations of the helicopter there. So, so if, if I have this right, you were what's known as a LERP, a Long Range <clears throat> Reconnaissance Patrol. Tell me a little bit more about that. How, what? Well, they weren't using the radar. Right. Uh, I think, yeah, I believe we took that stuff with us. We, we would have had to. But we never used it, so I can't can't recall ever seeing it there. Uh, we did some. I spent some time uh, at base camp because I got 
injured. I got a flare went off in my hand, mm -hmm. and I got burned pretty good in the hand. But and then we did some guard duty on the perimeter, but we didn't use the radar, so I'm not even sure we took it with us. But what sort of weapon did you carry? The uh, AR-15. And uh, yeah, we didn't. I didn't have a pistol. So. Do you remember the first time you had to use it? No. Don't didn't remember. Use it. Didn't use it. Never, never had to use it. No. So you were doing reconnaissance. So what was the, the idea was to be, not to be seen. Correct. You're, you're, tracking troop movements. Tell me a little bit more about that. Do you recall what you were doing? No. It, the only time I can re remember is uh, being on that mountaintop. Uh, it was a Christmas thing, and they brought in a, they helicoptered in a hot meal, but prior to that it was all just, you know, sea rations. So were you out in the field most of the time? No, just probably first couple months, and I really don't remember much about it, so I, I couldn't really say. But once, once I got injured and stuff, uh, I spent a lot of time at base. How long did it take to get over the injury? Well, about three weeks. Okay. Yeah. What were living conditions like out there? Well, out in the field, it was tent, wet, you know, it just like being a Boy Scout or something. But Sleeping on the ground? Yeah. Well, you yeah, had the air mattresses. You slept on air mattresses <clears throat> in, in tents or did you? Tent. Yeah, you'd carry your tents and everything with you, so. So when you went on one of these missions, how long were you gone? Oh, uh, it was probably out there a week to two weeks. Uh, a lot of the companies after that spent pretty much their whole year out there. They were supposed to come back every couple months mm -hmm. for a break. A lot of them just decided they didn't want to deal with it like that, so they just sort of volunteered to stay out there. But once I came back, uh, and I never went back out. You mean after you were injured? Yeah. You didn't have to go back out. So, but you were there a year. So, what did after you were injured? What were you? <clears throat> what were you doing all that time? Well, I was doing some guard duty, mm -hmm. doing uh, artwork for the uh, Carmen Tripolo. He ended up being a company commander, okay? And he would, uh, when I got back in there, he said, he knew I drew a picture of his wife back in basic training. So he said he wanted me to do artwork in the, uh, the mess hall so that people, I said, well, what do you want me to put on there? He said, just something to remind people of back home. You know, so I would pick things out of a magazine or something and painted them on a four by eight sheet of plywood. I think I did about eight, eight paintings. I didn't know you were an artist. Uh, I, I never talk about it much. It's just, a, I never took it as a profession. It's just it's something I've always done. You still do it now? Yeah. yeah? Yeah. Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. I do some good work, and then as an artist, you're always critical of your own work. Of course. 
Yeah. Most so, artists are. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I wish I had, and I probably did, but I don't know where they are, pictures of the artwork there. But I know one of the scenes was a, a party boat going down the Mohawk River. I happened to see it in a magazine, and I said, well, like it or not, it meant something to me. This is while you were in Vietnam. Yeah. You, you did this. <clears throat> okay. They have, uh, I don't know if it's a Smithsonian or there's some organization that, that, that documents military artwork. But those four by eight sheets, they, they're probably on somebody's hut roof somewhere over in Vietnam, <laughs> but it's hard to say. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Did you have a lot of uh, contact with the South Vietnamese people at all? Not a lot. No. Very What little. do you remember of that? Were they? Well, when we first got in country, we spent, I say, a month down around Da Nang. Uh, that was sort of social. Let's let's get you know it, it, some experience with what this country's about type huh. of thing. So we would go. I don't know if we was a town or just a market. Okay. And uh, you would talk to them people. There was no, actually the war, our, our experience with war hadn't even started yet. So it's sort of like going to any community next door, it's just some place you hadn't been before. Uh, you'd buy stuff, take it back home and back to the base. Yeah, I was curious as to what the reaction of the Vietnamese people were to people like you, since it was so early as compared to later on when things heated up. Yeah, I think, and, and that's a probably an important aspect, because at, at the time we were there, it just seemed casual. Casual, very casual. There was no, you know, screaming at you as, you know, American go home type of thing. Right. Yeah. Right, right. So, what were the holidays like for you over there? They were pretty sad. The, uh, like I say, we spent that one Christmas on that mountain, and that, that I remember really well. Why do you remember that? Well, because you miss home, you know? And that's pretty down, down feeling. Homesick. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, if you had to pick a, a memory, sticks out in your mind the most from your days in Vietnam, what would it be? Boy, like I say, I don't. I, getting back to when we met downstairs, that, that accident that I mm -hmm. mentioned to you, I think it gives me the ability, if something bothers me, it goes away. Explain what you mean. Well, I don't know if it was a concussion or, or whatever it might have been. You're talking about your bicycle accident. Yeah. No, not With your bicycle taxi. accident. You're, you, yeah. you ran into the taxi. Yeah. I hate to bring that up. The wife will hate me for that. But I don't know if that's what, what makes me who I am, okay? Because if something bothers me, I, I do have this ability to just... It, it, you literally forget about it. Yeah, goes away, and I have difficulty. I've, I've sat and tried to remember how could I not remember 
all these things that were going on, <clears throat> but I actually don't. So it wasn't <clears throat> duty. This is not due to your experience in Vietnam. You're saying this is due to something else. I believe your ability to put it all behind you and forget yeah. about you. Then you're probably one of the fortunate ones, actually. Yeah, I can see. Looking at it that way. Uh, yeah. No, yeah. that's true. But yeah. I, I can't explain it. Do you remember your 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 toward the end of your tour in Vietnam when things were winding down and you were getting ready to come home? Do you recall any of that and what that felt like? Being a short timer. Yeah, there's there's a little bit. There's you, the excitement of it. You know, the realization that, okay, I'm going to go home and I'm going to buy a brand new Pontiac, you know. Like I made, I think, $2,600 for two years in the military. You know, you didn't, you made a lot of money, so you got to spend You could it. buy a brand new car back then for $2,600, right? We're pretty close. Pretty yeah. close to it. Yeah. But no, that, other than that, and there was one one event. I went down to visit my brother when when I was recovering from that thing. He was in Cameron Bay. Mm -hmm. I said we both went in country the same day. So I go down to visit him and I one of the things I experienced was I never forget flying in on these four engine props. All right. The, the pilots, I think they like to practice on things, you know, to give them, put them to their limits. Mm -hmm. So we're landing on this little airstrip about the size of the park here. And uh, just seen before we touched down, the engines were reversed, and as soon as we hit the ground, we stopped. I mean, it's just unbelievable how that could have happened. But that's just military people taking, pushing things to the limit. Yeah, with you on board. Yeah, well, that wasn't so bad. We we got down, but I said, holy cow, yeah. this is awesome. Yeah. Do you remember coming home? Yeah, coming home was you know, a little bit difficult. You know, we weren't, we weren't, I'd say, persecuted or anything to that nature at that time, but nobody said welcome home for years. It was probably 20 years before somebody finally said, hey, welcome home, you know. Uh, coming up Furnace Street with a duffel bag, nobody even said hello, just walking off the bus, you know. That's yeah, one of the big downsides to the Vietnam War. Yeah. It, uh... Well, it really is, and that's that's why I would say one of the reasons I would say it's not worth it. Uh, the uh, one of the he wasn't a close friend, but one of the folks I was in basic with, he was in one of the he was probably in A Company. I can recall him telling me he went home and told his family and friends that he'd never see him again. Uh -huh. You know, and he. Uh, but yet he still had the courage to go because it was, I guess, what I would call the American mentality. You know, you get, get the call and you go. But yeah, he made 
he made the ultimate sacrifice. He died. He died yeah. over there. But yeah. the, the fact that he went, it's, that's still sort of haunts me, you know. I mean, it wasn't my fault, but the idea that he actually did that when everybody else was trying to find a way not to go, which I understand, you know. Are you, are you, a little bit, are you bitter about that? Uh, I'm bitter. The only part I'm bitter about is that they allowed the Canadians, the draft dodgers, to come home, you know. It, what it does to me, it just says to me that if you ever had a draft again, if I had children, I would say, no, I would, I would find any way to help you not go, okay? Because uh, the people in power, they don't care about you, okay? They're gonna stick you out there to die. It just, and if you don't, well, that's fine. But if you did, they don't care. Mm -hmm. So, and by bring, allowing the Canadian draft dodgers to come back free, you know, it just sent a bad message. It sends a message that they never should have a draft again because everybody should just leave, you know. Why bother? Yeah, I believe President Carter did that. And yeah. After he became president, he yeah. created amnesty for all mm -hmm. those people. Um, did you have any residual effects from your experience in Vietnam after you got home? No. Were you okay with everything? No, I wasn't okay with everything because it was the social aspect of it that rubbed me and a few other guys the wrong way in that sense. Like I say, nobody ever said thank you for your service until the Vietnam vets, not myself, but a lot of them, started welcoming home the Iraqi veterans, you know. They would go to the airports and say, hey, welcome home, because we didn't get a welcome, you know. Were you actively involved in this? No, no. Are you, were you actively involved in any local veterans organizations? Oh, uh, just the Legion. The Legion? Yeah. yeah still a member? Well, we had a memorial squad for mm -hmm. years that I was involved in. But, and when, uh, all the DWI stuff started getting worse and worse. It just stopped coming to town on a regular basis. So. Right. <laughs> yeah, I think we all went through that. Right. Um, looking back on it, if you had to pick a lesson to be learned from Vietnam for the American people, what would it be as a, as a veteran? Boy, I don't know. What's the takeaway? What should people remember the most about? Because the war, obviously, despite the heroic effort, it didn't end exactly the way we wanted it to. Well, it, it, it wouldn't be something about Vietnam by itself. It would be the, uh, the social aspect of it, okay? It, you're going to war now, all right? And basically, it's, it's a monetary thing. I believe the government creates like a corporation, okay? There's, I made $2,600 mm -hmm. in that one year of combat pay. Right, nowadays, a guy goes into service, it's a $50,000 a year job, or even better perhaps now. I think when, when we were having the war in Iraq and other places, 
getting a job wasn't that good an aspect for someone. Okay. So I believe the government made the military look enticing to get kids in there to, to go to war. Okay. My takeaway would be, you know, if you want peace in the world, uh, you just don't do that kind of thing. If you said you go in the military, you don't get paid at all. You just get fed and clothed and everything else. Nobody's going to go, okay? So then there ain't going to be no war. But that's only if every other country did the same thing. True. So, so realistically, humans like to take what someone else has, you know. And that, that's the kind of takeaway, but it's not directed at Vietnam, okay? But that's what I think about, okay. about that war, okay? It was something the guys that did go were just doing their responsibility, okay? And the guys that didn't go were doing what they needed to do. And I don't hold that against them for the most part. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you'd like to talk about? No, not really. Uh, sorry to say. But no, no, that's perfectly fine. That's perfectly fine. I appreciate you taking the time to do this, Charlie. Yeah. It's good talking to you. Right. Thank you for your service. Thank you. That's another story from a Little Falls Vietnam veteran. Until the next time, I'm Ralph Franzilli. Thank you.